When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT. In this week's show, supply challenges for gas. It's not an oversupply that is the problem. It is that demand is constrained and that it's that that is about to change. That's going to drive up the demand for gas and that's going to be led out of China. Feed-in tariffs for solar. The review has been prompted by the government's concern that the feed-in tariffs designed to encourage solar energy are going to be monopolised by very large-scale solar projects. And the future of oil tankers. People ordered an awful lot of ships. Those ships are now being delivered. The refineries, by and large, are not on stream, and so there are far too many ships about, and that's depressed the market for a long time. You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Joining me in the studio this week are the FT's energy correspondent, David Blair, Robert Wright, the FT's transport correspondent, and Lex writer, Vincent Boland. We start this week's show with comments from Frank Chapman, chief executive of BG Group, the oil and gas supplier, that the industry faces a huge supply challenge to bring online enough new gas to meet demand over the next 10 years. Now, Vincent, you were at their strategy update yesterday. Is Frank Chapman just sort of talking his own book here because obviously he's got a lot of gas It's a counterintuitive approach to the whole argument about whether there's just too much gas around and that companies like BG and Shell, to a certain extent, and other companies are investing too much in gas at the moment when the gas price is so low and the returns on it are so thin. His argument was that it's not an oversupply that is the problem. It is that demand is constrained and that it's that that is about to change and that that's going to drive up the demand for gas pretty substantially over the next few years. And that's going to be led out of China and the Asian emerging markets generally. It's taking the sort of opposite view to the conventional wisdom, which is that there's too much gas, uh, there's an oversupply, and that there isn't simply the demand there to make long-term profitable in the foreseeable future. Because he was also making the point, wasn't he, that you can't think of gas as just being a sort of global product, that you do have different markets. And even if the North American market has got lots of gas at the moment because of the shale gas discoveries, that doesn't necessarily apply to either Europe or Asia. Absolutely. It's a very regional and local market, the gas market globally. I mean, there isn't any global gas price the way there is an oil price. I mean, obviously, the gas prices are based on what the oil price is, or at least linked to it in some way. But you don't have a benchmark global gas price like you do with the oil price. So local and regional factors are very important in setting the price and setting returns that companies make and that shareholders get for that. I think he's right on that front, that the factors that determine the gas price in the US are very different to to the factors that might set the gas price in China, for example. I think that's a very fair argument. And he's obviously also in the camp, you just touched on it, that the gas price will still be linked to the oil price in contracts going forward. I think they obviously do a lot of gas contracts and they were sort of saying they hadn't seen any of their customers asking for those contracts to be de-linked. So he still expects the gas price to go up, I guess. Again, that's quite a sort of technical kind of argument that gas producers make about you know, what determines the gas price and why it's linked so closely to the oil price and whether that's going to continue or not. And that if gas is such a local product, why is it benchmarked to the oil price, which is a global product. I think that's a risk, actually, for gas companies generally, like BG. And was there anything in their results, now specifically on BG, that you thought was worth 
highlighting or that you were worried about? Because obviously, um, since Chapman took over BG, we've kind of gotten used to great results every year. The numbers are huge. The risk, I think, for investors in BG is that expectations are now so high about the company. Um, and you know, Frank Chapman has positioned BG as a very long-term growth story. And it's a buy on, on most investors and most analysts' lists, I think, right at the moment. So expectations are very high, and I think the the challenge is delivery. He has created more visibility around BG. He has made the company's earnings more visible. But execution is a risk, and you know delivering on these very high expectations and getting all of these these assets into production smoothly and getting Queensland up and running smoothly and expanding it to maybe three trains, as he was talking about yesterday. These are very big challenges, and I think that's the risk. But he has a good track record so far as CEO of making things work at BG, and I think that investors are expecting that to continue. Okay, thank you very much. Let's move on to feed-in tariffs for solar energy. Chris Hune, the UK Energy Minister, on Monday announced a review of the government's feed-in tariffs for solar energy generators. The moves created quite a lot of uncertainty for what is or what was quite a booming industry in the UK. Now, David, I just wonder if you could tell us what exactly the review is about. The review has been prompted by the government's concern that the feed-in tariffs designed to encourage solar energy are going to be monopolised by very large-scale solar projects at the expense of individual household and community projects, which is what the government originally intended to encourage. So Chris Hune has announced a comprehensive review of the whole policy. And the danger is that this is going to deter investment and create once again exactly the kind of uncertainty which the government said that it wanted to remove surrounding investment in all forms of renewable energy. Is that claim correct that it has encouraged the big companies to monopolise solar energy? Because I've read quite a few stories recently of sort of some of the smaller startups. I mean, what, what's, what, what does the industry look like at the moment? Well, at the moment, there are 21,000 separate schemes registered for feed-in tariffs, of whom the great majority, the vast majority, are very small scale. There are, however, four very large-scale solar arrays which have been given planning permission in Cornwall. And there are three other counties which are looking at similar schemes. So people do question, first of all, whether there is a legitimate ground for concern here at all. And secondly, even if big solar schemes are starting up and are taking a disproportionate share of the money, why would that necessarily be a bad thing? People point out, for example, that if you're going to have economies of scale, if you're going to have a proper supply chain, if you're going to drive down the costs of that supply chain, then it makes perfect sense to have very large-scale solar arrays. So even if the government is right, it may not necessarily be a bad thing. Do we know how long the review is going to last? Christine has spelled out that, uh, first of all, nothing will change at all until April next year. The existing tariff regime will remain uh, completely the same until then. Secondly, even if changes are introduced after that date, they won't apply to any existing solar arrays of any kind. It will merely be new entrants into the market. And thirdly, Hune has said that he will announce all his conclusions before the end of this year. So you can see how he is taking steps to try and avoid uncertainty. But nonetheless, a lot of people are very worried about this. And they point to one particular point, which is, OK, the government says it doesn't particularly like large-scale solar arrays, but how do they define a large-scale solar array? What's the threshold? And there no one has any idea. Uh, the, all sorts of figures are, are traded around, but no one really knows. And I think that's the key element of uncertainty. Just one final 
final question. It's become a bit of a hub, hasn't it, for solar power investment? I mean, just given our climate, uh, you wouldn't have thought it would be a natural place for these sorts of um, installations to work. Well, the most advanced solar schemes don't actually work on the principle of, of being powered by direct sunlight. The key variable is daylight intensity. And when it comes to daylight intensity, we may have very bad weather, but we still do have daylight. And although it may not seem like that at certain times of the year. And in fact, if you measure these things, we have exactly the same daylight intensity on average as Germany, for example. And meanwhile, Germany actually has a far larger investment in in solar power and a far greater provision of energy by solar energy. So we do have a climate that is compatible with doing this, despite appearances. Thanks very much. And to our final topic for today, earnings for ships carrying oil products are, quote, at or close to the bottom and have been too low to cover most owners' costs since mid-2009. Now, Robert, I just wondered if you could give us a bit of the background on this, because from where I sit, I look at the oil price, which is, is, is obviously at the Brent crude is trading over $100 a barrel at the moment. Why is that high price not feeding back into product tankers? For any shipping market, it's a mixture of supply and demand. And fundamentally, what's happened in this market, we're talking about, incidentally, we should probably say, first of all, what what kind of ship we're talking about here. We're talking about what's called a product tanker. It's a tanker that carries oil products. It's a bit different from what people normally think of as a tanker, which is something that carries crude oil. These are tankers with specialist tanks that can carry things like diesel oil, jet fuel, that that, that kind of thing. And there are very specific circumstances in, in this market that I'll, I'll try to explain. People expected there to be a huge boom in demand for these kinds of ships simply because of developments in the refinery market. There are a lot of refineries under construction in India, around the coast of Gujarat, in the Gulf region, and those areas are not the places those products are going to be consumed. So everybody expected a few years ago that there was going to be a huge amount of extra demand to move stuff long distances. So particularly in the larger sizes of product tankers, which go long distances, people ordered an awful lot of ships. Those ships are now being delivered. The refineries, by and large, are not on stream, and so there are far too many ships about, and that has that's depressed the market for a long time. The thing that people are worried about now is the demand side of the equation. In crude oil, as you pointed out, demands come back very quickly, um, very strongly. There's an awful lot of, of demand for crude oil. In products, there are an awful lot of stocks left sitting around from before the recession. Those stocks are still there. That's depressing demand. And more to the point, that's kind of depressing demand to move stuff about because people have got stocks sitting pretty much everywhere. Normally, this market depends on arbitrage, say, between... There are a lot of refineries in the U.S. that produce diesel oil. Most of the cars that use diesel are in Europe. So there's usually an arbitrage between those markets. There's product to be moved between those places, and that's not happening in, in anything like the same way now. So that's that's really keeping this, this market down. And, and what are the, the owners of these um, product tankers doing? Are they are they mostly sort of private companies? I mean, are, are they cutting costs? Are they, I don't know, are they consolidating? I mean, how are they reacting to this? Most people expect that there is going to be consolidation o- over the long term, but there's not really a huge amount they can d- they can do at the moment. There are some some small owners, particularly um, ones that are owned by these German investment funds called KG funds, and I think a lot of people would expect that some of those funds are going to be forced to sell ships. You're going to have relatively big companies like um, at Denmark's Maersk, which is the world's biggest operator of product tankers, are going probably going to be buying more of them over time, and perhaps some of the smaller operators that are 
really dependent on product tankers are probably going to struggle and might be might be forced to sell. In terms of the the refineries, I mean, are, when are they meant to be sort of coming up and running time-wise? Well, the indications are that they are beginning to come on stream. Uh, I was in Copenhagen recently. I spoke to Torm, which is a, a Danish group that's the world's second biggest operator of product tankers, and, and they pointed out it's perhaps a funny thing to be boasting about in a way, but they recently had a ship seized by pirates in the um, off the coast of Somalia, and they said that was coming from one of these new Indian refineries. So those refineries are beginning to come on stream. There is demand coming back, but this is a market where really people bought far too many ships. There are a lot of shipping markets like that at the moment, but this is one of the most troubled of them. Thank you very much. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank my guests, David Blair, Robert Wright and Vincent Boland. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.